pray. Father, as your prophet said, we found your word and we did eat it. For it is your word that is bread and it is your word that is the living water because it leads us to Christ. And we would exalt him this morning. And we would evaluate ourselves to see whether or not we are pleasing to him. No, Father, I pray that by your word we would be humbled and that you, O Lord God, would be gloriously exalted in how our hearts respond to the text that lay before us. Father, be merciful to your people now. And may we view this word through the two lenses of law and grace. Law and grace. The law to keep us humble, reminding us of our sin. And grace to keep us encouraged that we are loved by holy God. And may this be true in us today as we study your word. For we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We continue our study through the book of Hebrews this morning. Inching our way through this glorious chapter that you are all familiar with. And I'd like for us to read this morning a longer text than I will have time to really consider. But beginning with verse 13... And we will read through through verse 22. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 22. All these died. Now now stop there for just a second. Let me just set this up because I know some of you haven't been with us. All these is referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the immediate context, and Abel, Enoch, and Noah, who... He has just talked about, previous to speaking about Abraham and his descendants. And so all the way back through to verse 1, up through verse 13, these are the people that he's referring to. And he says, again, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers in exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. And it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, 
even regarding things to come. And by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. My, oh, my, what a text this is. If you love to eat the word of God, this, beloved, is a feast. As I was studying this text this, this week, it is so freighted with spirit-wrought treasure that, frankly, it was difficult to know what to say. Think about it for a moment. Here we find the perseverance of the saints to the end. Here we see the God-centeredness of God's design for our trials. Namely, the God-centeredness of God's design for Abraham's trial. We also see explicit examples of generational faithfulness. We could preach on that. And we could discuss the importance of delayed gratification, a longing for heaven, and a number of various other topics that could easily be drawn out of this text. In fact, why don't we just make a day of it, shall we? No takers, I hear. (laughs) But to be perfectly honest, when I read again about these Old Testament saints this week from this text, the only thing I wanted to know The only thing I wanted to know from this text is, why is God not ashamed to be called their God? It's the only thing I want to know from this text. I want to know this because the implication is that he will be ashamed. He will be ashamed to be called some people his God. Or to say it another way, on that final day, there are many people who think they belong to God, but whom God will not look at them and say, you are my people, and I am your God. God is not ashamed to be called their God, and I want to know why. Why? Why is God not ashamed to be called their God? Now, this is a very unusual phrase in the Bible. It really, like this, is nowhere else. Now, the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, is known for quoting the Old Testament scriptures. Out of the Greek, the Old Testament Greek, the the, uh, Septuagint, all through the book of Hebrews, he has been making his case by, by referring to Old Testament scriptures. He's speaking to Jewish people. But this is not a quote from the Old Testament. This is not a quote from anywhere. In the Bible. It's a very unusual phrase. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible where the Holy Spirit tells us about God not being ashamed of someone. The only thing close to it, and really its opposite, that I could find in the Word of God was the same account repeated both in Matthew and in Luke. Jesus said very clearly, Luke 9, 26, 
that whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his glory. So on the last day, there will be two groups of people that perhaps we've never considered before. Namely, those whom God is ashamed to be associated with and those of whom he is proud or pleased to be associated with. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be found in the latter group. I want to be found in the group of people that God looks at and says, Well done! Good and faithful slaves. I want to be found among the number toward whom God will point and say, This one is born in Zion. This one belongs to me. I want to be among those whom God will look at on that day and say, very similarly to what he said to his own son, when he said at his baptism, and again at the Mount of Transfiguration, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, which is just another way of saying, I am not ashamed to be called his God. You want to know the answer to this? You want to know why? I want to know why. And I think the text tells us, Beloved, this I submit to you, is the ultimate of all ultimate compliments. To have the holy and infinite and awesome creator and sustainer of all that is. The one whose high regard is not easily won, but whose opinion is the only one that matters. To have him look down from his eternal throne in the heavenlies and declare, I am not ashamed to be called your God. That, beloved, is the ultimate compliment. That is the only word I want to hear on that day. Oh, beloved, is there anything more worthy of our ambition than to hear these words? The only question that matters in that final hour is not, It's not, where will my tuition money come from for the next semester? It's not, where am I going, what am I going to prepare for my family for lunch today? Don't go there. I've got 40 minutes. Don't go there, ladies. Don't think about lunch for 40 minutes. And the ultimate question is not, what will we do if gas prices continue to rise and reach, reach maybe $5 by the end of this summer? That's not the question you should be asking right now. And you should not be asking, I wonder if the preacher is really going to finish on time today. That's the wrong question. The only question that's worth answering today, the only question we need to be thinking about for the next several minutes or so is this. Why was God not ashamed to be called their God? Now let's see if we can discover the answer by piecing together the author's thoughts one at a time. 
What would the Holy Spirit want us to learn from the lives of these precious Old Testament saints that will reveal to us why God is not ashamed to be called their God? If you're taking notes, number one, God is not ashamed to be called their God because, number one, they died without receiving the promises. That's what the text says. I mean, that's where, that's the starting point to his whole explanation here. And so we can't ignore this as upside down as it sounds. They died without receiving the promises. Verse 13 says so. Look at it with me. And all these died in faith without receiving the promises. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, God keeps all of his promises, right? How can the author say that all of these died without receiving the promises? Well, I think there's more than one kind of promise, is there not? Perhaps God offers us both temporal promises and eternal promises. The temporal promises we experience today. Now, let me, let me share with you a promise, and you tell me whether it's temporal or eternal. Deuteronomy 31.6. We'll just draw from the Old Testament The Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Is that a temporal promise or an eternal promise? I would suggest it's temporal. Because it was given to Moses and to the people as they were preparing to launch off into the wilderness headed toward the promised land. And it was a frightening deal. And the Lord is saying, don't be afraid. Here is my promise to you. The Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. You can trust me on that. I will always be with you. When you need food, I'll provide it. When you need water, I'll provide that. When you need protection, I'll give you that. When you need to cross another sea or another body of water, say the Jordan River, don't worry about it. No problem. I will be with you. But what about the other kinds of promises? There are eternal promises that we will not experience the fulfillment of in this life. Take all of the promises about heaven, all of the promises about eternal reward, all of the promises about seeing God in Christ face to face on that day. These are temporal promises whose fulfillment we will realize only after we die or when the Lord takes us home. And we don't have a lot of early Old Testament statements of these promises, but we know they were there because Job, who was the earliest of them all, wrote these words. He said, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand upon the earth. Now listen to this. Even after my skin is destroyed, that is, after I die, Yet in my flesh I shall see God. What's he saying? Somewhere along the way, God said, this life is not all there is. Someday your Redeemer will stand before your eyes and you will see him face to face. Trust me. How was Job able to endure the suffering that God allowed in his life, even designed for his life? I submit to you that he could not. 
if he was being ruled by the promises of the world, he could not, his wife didn't, curse God and die, remember? Thank you, helpful. Job's three counselors, find another counselor. Job knew. Job knew God's eternal promises, and it kept him going. It kept him not sinning with his mouth. And then when he did sin with his mouth, he covered it up and said, I spoke once, I'll never speak again. And so I would contend that there are many promises that God has made to his people whose fulfillment we experience every day through God's provision of various kinds. But there are heavenly promises that should be just as real to us, though we will not experience the fulfillment of them until glory. In other words, we will die. We will die believing that God will fulfill those promises when this life is over. We will die in expectation. And I know some of you hearing my voice today have loved ones who are at that door. I pray with you that they are prepared and they are eager because they are about to see the fulfillment of God's eternal promises by them. Dying in faith, finishing well, persevering to the end. These are the promises I think the author of Hebrews is referring to. The promises that we will die believing that God will fulfill them when this life is over, which is just another way of saying they died in faith. If they had received the promise, they would not have died in faith. They would have died having already experienced the fulfillment. And the Apostle Paul says, why do we hope for, why do we believe in what we already have? That doesn't make any sense. And so the very definition of the kind of faith he's talking about is a dying faith. It's the kind of faith that we carry with us to our deathbed. It's the kind of faith that not only carries us to our deathbed, but it is one that moves in us so that the mundane decisions of life are based upon those promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never possessed the promised land. They walked it. They pitched their tents in it. But they never possessed it. In fact, consider this. Abraham, his son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob. The son of promise. Uh, Jacob. From Jacob it was Joseph, right? And so, think about this. God made a promise to Abraham, but it was not until 500 years after Joseph's death that the children of Israel entered the promised land. That's the amazing thing, and we'll look at this next week. That last verse, verse 22, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the Exodus. Now that may not strike you if you don't understand the timeline here. Joseph wasn't anywhere near the Exodus. He was going to die long before the Exodus. And so he gave instructions about his bones. And thereby presenting to his children and their children that God will be faithful to his promise. And I'm telling you, when that happens, don't forget my instruction 
Because I believe it with all of my life, all of my heart, that you're going to leave this slavery. And so when you go, take my bones with you. And they did. Nevertheless, since God had promised, even though it was 500 years coming, they believed. They believed that the fulfillment of that promise would happen after they died rather than during their lifetime. And they were not only content with that, they were motivated by that. This is not just an intellectual belief. This is not a 1 plus 1 equals 2, 2 plus 2 equals 4 kind of belief. Their faith drove them to make radical and very practical decisions, choices about how they would live. They died without receiving the promises, but they lived believing the promises. You see that? They died without receiving the promises, but they lived believing the promises. And that takes us to the second thing the author would have us know about these beloved Old Testament saints. They lived believing the promises. They died without receiving the promises, but they lived believing the promises. Look at verses 13 and 14. All these died in faith or according to faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Now notice with me the three participles here. First, having seen. Second, having welcomed. And third, having confessed. First, their faith enabled them to see the invisible. Does that sound familiar to you? You remember verse 1 of chapter 11, where he gives the definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not what? Seen. But their faith in God's promise enabled them to see what was unseen. That's the definition of faith, or half of it. Faith in God's promises enabled them to see with new eyes. And suddenly the world no longer looked the same. And things that used to be precious to them were now worthless. And things that had been previously worthless had now become precious because something of infinitely greater value had appeared on the horizon and it had a profound impact on their affections And when that profound uh, impact on their affections happened, the result was a profound and lasting impact on their decisions, how they would live their life. And you've had this happen to you too, many of you. It's like when I was in college, enjoying my singleness. I used to have a coffee cup in my dorm room with big red letters on it that said, I love being single. And eventually, my wife, eventually my wife-to-be, when I proposed to her, or got ready to propose to her, she said, 
something to the effect of, if you ever propose to me, I'm going to destroy that cup. And I did, and she did. <laughs> but I loved being single. That's, that's what I used to tell my parents. I'm never going to get married. I'm enjoying this. And my mom said, yeah, right. I entered school in January, which had the effect of preserving my singleness. But when September rolled around, a new class of freshmen arrived, and there appeared on the horizon a young lady who made all the delights of singleness look like garbage. Now, I had to wait two years before the joy of married life would begin, but I tell you, beloved, that when that young lady agreed to marry me, it changed everything in my life. It didn't exist in my mind merely as a propositional construct of the intellect. It took absolute control of my affections and my ambitions regarding how I would govern my life from this moment forward. My schedule changed. My priorities changed. My address book changed. Many friendships changed. I, I distinctly remember I used to travel with um, a choir in our school. And, and I remember the depth of the friendships that I had with uh, many. It was a large choir, and, we, and there were many of us who seemed to be very close friends. We did things together. We hung out together. And they all knew about this young lady in my life. didn't matter. But after we got engaged, everything was different. For a period of four months, it seemed like I was going to be relatively friendless because I had someone else in my life who superseded all the other friendships, and everyone knew that. And so everything changed. Why? Because even though I could not yet experience the promise of marriage to the woman I loved, yet I could see it on the horizon as clearly as anything that I was experiencing at that moment. I could see it as clear as day because she promised and I believed. Understand? Is that helpful? So it was with these Old Testament saints. Their faith in God's promise enabled them to see the fulfillment of the promises, even though the fulfillment remained yet invisible. And their seeing did something to them. It changed their lives. It governed their lives. The promises of God ruled them. Second, their faith in these promises not only enabled them to see the invisible, their faith enabled them to welcome, welcome God's promises. Not only to see the fulfillment, but to welcome it. Now, that seems like a strange term to use here in our English Bibles. What does that mean, to welcome the promises? Well, notice in the text that they welcome them, that is, the promises from a distance. It says that um, 
in verse 13, having welcomed them from a distance. It's like when a boat is coming to the end of a long journey, and as the passengers get a glimpse of the harbor, though it's still far off, yet they begin making out the forms of their loved ones waiting for them on the dock and begin waving to them, though they can't quite see them. It's as if they are greeting them from afar. This past January, my family and I went on a ski trip, took a little vacation, went to Colorado, never done that before. And uh, we got there, and on the way up, uh, Pace Moorhead called us and said, uh, hey, I've been checking out the ski slopes, and here's the latest weather report. He was pretending to be the weatherman for us, and and he said, as I see it, uh, it's snowing, and it looks like it's pretty cold, and it looks like people are skiing, and that's the weather report. Have a great day. And so a couple of days later, we got to the ski resort, and, uh, and I called him, and I said, uh, can you really see where we are? And he said, well, let me pull it up on the Internet, and I'll see if I can see it. And he said, yeah, it's snowing right now, right? I said, yeah, it's snowing. Great. The next day we were there, and I got the family together, and I said, let's figure out where that camera is. And we'll stand in that spot, and we'll look up, and I'll call him, and we'll wave. And him and and Penny and and little Seth can look at their Internet and see the Kirk family waving to them from afar. So this is what we did. We gathered everybody together so we could, you know, we kind of had an idea of the direction of the camera based on his description. And we stood there, and I said, okay, I got him on the phone. He's got his Internet up. Everybody start waving. So we start going. And about... Five minutes after that, this lady came skiing down and said, Hi! (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Said, well, we weren't waving to you. (laughs) We were waving to our friends who we can't see, but we believe that they are afar and they're watching us now. Can you believe it? Sure, we... Bye! (laughs) When you believe the sure is close, you don't... Reach over and open up a lounge chair, grab a lemonade, and order dinner. You start packing. You start getting ready to get off the ship. And for the rest of your voyage, you're standing there at the rail, ready to get off the ship. And whatever else needs to be done while you're on the ship, you do it. But that's not where your heart is. You're not living to be on the ship. Just like Noah didn't live to be on the ark, he couldn't wait to get off the ark. And that's how these Old Testament saints lived their whole lives. After God made the promise of another country, they believed. And so their faith enabled them to see God's promises. And their faith enabled them to welcome these promises like friends that they loved but could not see clearly and experience, but they believed it as if they could see it, and so they governed their lives accordingly. And third participle here, having confessed, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, verse 13. Going back to my previous story, after my sweetheart agreed to marry me, I never saw my parents' home in the same light again. 
I always felt welcome. I always sensed that I was loved there. I always felt that I could go home, and my mom was always going to be my mom, and my, my dad, in some sense, was always going to be my dad. And there would be an inseparable tie that would bind us as parents and child, and yet everything was different. It was all different. I could never again feel like it was home. In fact, during that period of time, while I was still living in my dorm room, looking toward the fulfillment of the promise, my parents moved a couple times. Uh, one time I was away, and, and I called home, and they said, by the way, we've moved. And I said, well, where to? And my dad said, we're not telling. <laughs> Just show up at the airport. We'll take you there. And on occasion, I would go home not knowing where home was. And every time I went home, I felt like, you know, living out of a suitcase, uh, being in kind of a strange place, getting to have to know the surroundings. Each time I went home, this really isn't home. Where is home? My home is that place that I can only see through eyes that were given to me by the promise. My home is with a woman that I have not yet married. And I will spend the rest of my life, Lord willing, in that home, and that will be home. I believe it, and I'm governing my life by it, and my affections agree with these decisions because, and motivate these decisions because she promised, and I believe. That's the way it was for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They lived in a foreign land. It was their land. But they lived there as foreigners and exiles in a land that God had promised. They never settled down. They never became citizens. They never took on any rights of their own. They never made selfish demands upon the people and the society in which they lived. Why? Because God had made a promise. God had made a promise. Look at verse 14. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Now this is a statement, kind of a restatement of verses 9 and 10. Just look up the page there to verse 9. By faith he, that's still speaking of Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same Promise For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so it went like this. Since God has promised a celestial city, no terrestrial city can satisfy. I cannot be satisfied. I will not be satisfied with anything this world offers. I will be thankful and I will enjoy it to the glory of God with limitations. I will never be mastered by it. I ran into a text this week. Turn back with me to uh, Psalm, I think, 101. Just having my quiet time reading through Psalms. And I came across this text which I didn't have highlighted, and I thought maybe the Spirit inserted it when I wasn't looking. 
Psalm 101, verse 3. The psalmist said, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. I sh- it shall not fasten its grip on me. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Why? Because I know it tends to take charge of my heart. It wants to to get its grip on me and never let me go. I will not let that happen. I will live here as a stranger. I will live here not fully understanding the culture. I don't have to fully understand the culture. I have to know God. And so these Old Testament saints were seeking what their hearts desired. They were seeking the city of God, the holy habitation of the Lord. They were seeking, as David said in Psalm 27, One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. That's what I live for. I want to live in the city of God, and I will not be fully satisfied in this life until I can live with Him, until I can be in the presence of my God. They were not content to live among men because God promised that one day they would live with Him. And so what what have we learned about these Old Testament saints? First, they died without receiving the promises. Or they died in faith, having not received the promises. Secondly, they lived believing the promises. And third, they persevered without abandoning the promises. Look at verse 15. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Now, if you've been following along, following along in our study of the book of Hebrews, what was the big issue? Why did he write this book? He wrote the book because this little Jewish church had heard that though they had once experienced significant persecution and now were living in a period of peace, yet it looks like on the horizon that more persecution is coming. Not only that, but the Judaizers, the false teachers, were coming into that church saying, listen, you, didn't, you should never have... Uh, giving your allegiance to Jesus Christ in the beginning. He's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. Come back to us. Come back to your home. Come back to your comforts. Come back to the synagogue. Come back to the circumcision. Come back to family. Come back. And all along the way, the author is saying, hold fast, draw near, don't go back. Hold fast, draw near, don't go back. And now he slips this little thing into his narrative. When he says, indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they left, they would have had opportunity to return back. But. But. As it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. 
And so you see, it's not as though they had no other choice but to live as foreigners and strangers. If they had wanted to, if Abraham and, and the others had wanted to, they could have gone back to their homes in Ur of the Chaldees. And they could have simply packed up their tents and herded their livestock southward. No problem. They could have returned to comfort. They could have returned to familiarity, to stability, to security. The security of their hometown, their home friends, their jobs, their roots. But no. They chose rather to live in tents and to wander because they valued something of infinitely greater worth than what earthly citizenship and comfort could offer them. Again, David helps us understand their affections when he wrote, O God, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God, which is to say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of of my God than to dwell in the opulent tents of the wicked. I don't want to be rich in this world's goods. I want to be rich in terms of being with you. Make me a slave, God. Make me your slave. I'll stand at the door. I'll do the most menial task. I only want to be with you. And this is stated most explicitly in verse 16 of Hebrews 11. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Did you note the word desire? They desired something. They saw on the horizon some choices. And in their evaluation, one choice was more desirable, more valuable to them than the other choice. To the eyes of unbelief. This makes no sense. It makes no sense to live this kind of lifestyle. It makes no sense to live not according to the promises of the world, to be ruled by its promises, but to be ruled by the promises of God and govern your life in the radical ways that that demands. That doesn't make any sense to the eyes of unbelief. These otherwise intelligent, gifted, educated, even wealthy people chose to live believing the promises To persevere under incredibly challenging circumstances without abandoning these promises and then died without receiving the fulfillment of these promises? I mean, they got to the end and they didn't have it? I mean, what kind of foolishness is that? What a tragic waste. What abject foolishness. What kind of gullible, weak-minded, superstitious freaks are these people? And that's what they said, isn't it, about Jim Elliot and the Ecuador Five? I mean, he was the brightest guy in his school. He went to Wheaton College. Everybody knew him. But he lived a different life than they did. He wouldn't do much of what they did. While they were out partying, he was back studying the Word. At lunch hour, he was back in his dorm, not hanging out with his friends. He was there reading the Psalms to feed his soul. And when he went, he didn't study. uh, I dare not say anything. I don't want (laughs) to unnecessarily offend. What could you study? 
But he made choices about what he would study in school. And you know what he chose to study? Greek in college. Why? Because he had a holy ambition. He was going to give his life on the mission field. I'm not saying all of you need to be missionaries. That's not what I'm communicating a bit. I don't believe that. But he governed his life based on the promises of God. And his parents taught him to. And they forgot that. If you've ever read the diary of Jim Elliot, you'll know that on one occasion when he was getting ready to go uh, to South America, to Ecuador. Is that right? Ecuador. His parents wrote him a letter and said, stay home. Minister here. There are churches who want you. And he wrote back. I don't want to call it a scathing letter, but it was a forthright rebuke of his parents, questioning what they were living for. Mom and Dad, you taught me to live by the eternal promises of God. If I perish, I perish, and with joy. Because for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How can you say that? I believe the promises you taught me. I believe the promises that I have discovered for myself in your word, and I will not be satisfied. You know where Jim and Elizabeth and Elliot spent their honeymoon? They got married down there, and they spent their honeymoon in a tent on the river on their mission field. And it was squalid. And it was full of mosquitoes, but it was their joy. Foolishness. Not through the eyes that believe God's promises. And when those five men were speared to death, all of the newspapers of the world said, tragic, waste, unfortunate, disaster. And at that very moment, they were standing with the one who made the promise and kept it. That's why they did that. That's why they went there. Do you know, and I haven't seen the pictures of this yet, Brent, you've got to get them to me. The picture of the new tribe they found in South America. Right? South America? A new tribe. And, and, and I'm told that there's a picture, many of you have seen it, and with the natives, got their... Bows and arrows, their war paint, they're pointing it at the airplane flying over. And Brent told me one of his friends on his website has got that picture up with the words over it. Who will go? I have an answer for that. I know who's going to go. I don't know their name, but I know this. It will be a young man or a group of young men who so believe the promises of God that they don't give a rip about this life. They're not living for now. They're living for then. They're living for the city of God. There's one thing they want, and that is to dwell in the city of God. And everything else in life is governed and ruled and decisions are made based on that invisible but clearly seen promise of God. I have no idea where I am on my notes. The world thinks these kinds of people are foolish These are the kinds of questions the world asks 
when they see this kind of person today? What was wrong with them? Who made them like this? What happened in their childhood that so warped them that they would live in such a way? They seem so smart and so gifted. And of course it makes sense that the world would ask these kinds of questions of people like that today. But here's what we need to see, beloved. God's opinion of such people is radically more important, infinitely more important, and radically different than the people around whom they live. And that's what this text is about. Verse 16, I didn't finish reading. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let me tell you something. If you choose to live a life like this, there will be friends that you have who will be ashamed of you. You will have family members who will call you fanatic. And they will say something's a little warped about you, a little crazy, a little different. And the people that you might otherwise want to be friends with won't want to be your friend. But you won't care. Because the opinion of your friends you view as garbage compared to God's estimation of you. And God says, world be ashamed, but I am not ashamed of this one. I am his God. I am her God. And he is my beloved son. God is not ashamed. God is not ashamed to call them their God. And God was not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because a mere taste of heaven's promises provoked in them a holy dissatisfaction with the best promises the world had to offer. That's the answer. Can I remind you of the question? Why did God say? I am not ashamed to be called their God. The answer is because a mere taste of heaven's promise provoked in them a holy dissatisfaction with the best promises this world had to offer. And they lived by it. People who live like this are those who have tasted and discovered that the Lord is good. They are the ones who find the treasure in the field and hide it again. And from joy over it, Jesus says, they go and they sell all that they have and buy that field. These are not weak-minded fools. These are the richest, most intelligent people in the world. They're constantly laying up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in or steal. The difference between those whom God is ashamed of and those whom God is not ashamed of is that one is digging for treasure in the earth and the other has already found his treasure in Christ, in God. 
Beloved, let me ask you this. Let me ask you a few questions. What's it going to take to dislodge 20 of you to pull up stakes out of this secure, comfortable ground to become aliens and foreigners for God among the nations who have yet to hear about the cross of Christ? What's it going to take? This is what it will take. What has the power to inspire some of you to completely change the course of your life so that you put your hand to the plow of reaching the lost in this town and around the world, holding nothing back? What is it that can provoke some of you to make the kind of radical financial decisions in your life that might enable this church or someone in this church to enter into a God-centered ministry to accomplish what till now they have only been able to dream of? This is what it will take. Listen closely. When the eternal Spirit of God reveals the value of the promises of God. You will become dissatisfied with everything but God. And then it will happen. When the eternal Spirit of God reveals the value of the promises of God, you will become dissatisfied with everything but God. Everything but, you could say, the Son of God. And then you will do crazy things that the world hates. And God absolutely loves. You know, when you think about it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob understood far less about the promises of God than you and I do. We have very little revelation. All they had was a taste of the promise. All they had was a small taste of the promises. We have the very person of the promise living within us. John Calvin wrote these words. Though God gave to the fathers only a taste of that grace, which is largely poured out on us, though he showed to them at a distance and only obscure representation of Christ, who is now set forth to us clearly before our eyes, yet they were satisfied and never fell away, how much greater reason then have we at this day to persevere? Beloved, the ancient axiom is still true today. We do what we do because we want what we want. We do what we do because we desire what we desire. The only question is, what do I desire? What do I want? These Old Testament saints were seeking a country of their own, verse 14, because they desired something more than they could ever have here on earth, verse 16. Namely, a country and a city wherein they could enjoy the sweet, satisfying, awesome presence of God. Again, David fills our mouths with the appropriate words when he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Why was God not ashamed to be called their God? 
It was because a mere taste of heaven's promise provoked in them a holy dissatisfaction with the best promises the world had to offer. And it freed them to live lives of radical faith and accomplish awesome things for God. And you don't have to pull up and leave on to go on the mission field to do this. God calls most men into business to support men who go on the field. That's true. But if that's the case for you, then God has a radical way of life for you that the world will never understand. And I know there are some of you who live like that, though you don't see it as well as perhaps we do. And the world looks at you and say and says, man, you make me uncomfortable. You're a little different. I like you, but I'm not going to spend much time with you because you're a little weird. You're a little freakish. And I know you're not going to do the things that I like to do. You're not going to go with us to party. You're not going to hang out with the guys and do what they do and talk about what they talk about. I know that being around you is often a, a rebuke. Just your presence is a rebuke to my lifestyle. The only way that's going to happen is if you live for the eternal promise of God. So the question for us is simple, beloved. Is God ashamed to be called your God? The implication here is if we're not living by faith, if we're sinking our roots into the pleasures of this life, if that is what we live for, then the answer is yes. God is ashamed to be called your God. Whose opinion do we care about? Family's opinion? A co-worker's opinion? Our employer's opinion? Or have we made it our holy ambition? God, no matter what you ask me to do, I will do it full throttle, full court press until the end. You just tell me what to do. Tell me where to go and I'll go and I will do because I trust you. And the only thing I care about is your opinion. I want to hear on that day, I want to hear God say, I am not ashamed to be called your God. Let's pray. Father, this strikes in my own heart, my own life. I know my own family. The realization of how far short we come to the measure of Christ that is seen in these saints of old who were waiting for the Messiah and who knew very little about him because almost nothing had been revealed. And yet we have so much. We have the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the glory of heaven. And yet we want to serve our flesh and our God. Could it be possible that even while we act like faithful men and women of God, that you might be ashamed of us? Oh, Father, grant repentance.
Grant the joy of walking with you and being ruled by your promises, we pray in Jesus' name.